When I said poison, I meant it. Whoa. Monty. What's all this about somebody trying to kill Abigail? Where did you find out about that? I gave that to Mother tonight. She bawled me out for it and said she was going to give it back to Abigail in the morning. Oh, then you're the guy that slugged me. Yeah, and I'll do it again any time you train down to my weight. You really want some tea? Yes. <laughs> I pick my tea strong. It makes me sleep better. You'll sleep. Oh, sacred, huh? Keeps your weight down. Kind <laughs> anxious little things, aren't they, huh? Oh, pretty strong for their size, too. Drink, and you'll sleep. Mr. Penny. Hmm? What are you doing with that coffin? Well, the coffin is a very fine hand. Yeah, well, what's that body doing in there? To the Bloody Pit. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And tonight, Troy and I do return to the 1940s Universal Horror sequence that we are doing. This is where we are taking the Tom Weaver Universal Horror book and starting with 1940, marching our way mm-hmm. through each film, the Universal Horror output of 1940. Not the 1930s where everybody's happy and everybody's yeah. <laughs> thrilled because there are so many classic films, mm. but the benighted 40s where all these people start talking trash. Yeah, that's right. Well, we don't believe in talking trash. No, we don't. We, well, we might end up... We don't believe, yeah. We, we believe. might talk We might, <laughs> we might talk talk a little bit We might talk a little bit of trash, <laughs> bit of trash <laughs> when the film isn't that awesome. I mean, you know, we... Mm-hmm. We did talk about you know Black Friday for God's sake. Yeah, the, yeah, we're not the point of this. Uh, point of this series is not that all these films are awesome. It's the point is that most of them, most of them, have not been talked about a whole lot to begin with, and so and some kind of, of them yeah. are some of them are really underseen. Yeah, including yeah. the film yeah. that we'll be talking about tonight. Yeah, the nineteen forty one film The Black Cat, and of course that means no, it is not the classic nineteen thirty four mm. film The Black Cat <laughs> with Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff. This is the 1941 film with Basil Rathbone mm-hmm. and Bella and Bella Lugosi. <laughs> and it uh, and no, it does not mean it's based on Poe, although it would have you think that it is. <laughs> yes, once again, Universal attempting to milk that Poe reference. <laughs> although there's really only one Poe reference that really fits within the context of the story. Right. I will say that they uh, this film I think tries a little harder than even the '30s Black Cat to <laughs> reference Poe, but not that much. You know, it's so. still an oblique reference. It doesn't <laughs> yeah, really very, work yeah, as exactly. effectively as they. Yeah. I know. I, I, well, I was going to say as effectively as they think it will, but I'll honestly say right out, I don't think that they were really trying hard. No, to, to, no. to be to be honest, I no. think they they just throwing that title out there is what I think mm. they thought was going to be most effective. Right. With that in mind, we should warn everyone that if you've not seen this seventy-minute little old dark house film from 1941 uh we're probably going to end up spoiling the ending uh we'll try to kind of glance away from who actually is Mm. the dastardly character Mm. uh but if you've seen very many of these films you're going to figure it out really quickly hint 
it's not the obvious person. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, it's not the... But uh, we'll try not necessarily to spoil it, but I'm betting we're going to spoil it. Mm-hmm. I'm just, this is the way yeah. our conversations normally <laughs> Probably go. Probably so, right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, this, this is, uh, you know, <sighs> keep that in mind. So, for right now, uh, really quickly, Troy, I, well, I just wanted to say, I know you just got back from G-Fest recently. Mm-hmm. How did things go? G-Fest was a blast as always. This was my eighth one to go to. Uh, always just uh, so much fun. Uh, G-Fest, for anyone who doesn't know, is the Godzilla-themed convention that is held in Chicago uh, every summer. And uh, this was the 26th one, I believe, was the number for that. And uh, grows every year. I think even more people this year. I think it's pretty much, I'm, I'm hoping it's not going to eventually I'll grow the hotel because the hotel is a really good one that they have it in. And uh, But uh, Godzilla just becomes more popular every year, of course. And and, uh, and and they, I think even, I think they broke attendance records this year as well. But very cool convention because it's much more there's much much more in the way of families there than there are at your average convention you know it's it's not all just fanboys and black t-shirts you know going around <laughs> like so many conventions are this one because they have i think it's because you've got so many people who grew up Godzilla fans and they've got families now and their kids are starting to get into it so you've got guys bringing their wives and their kids and and there's a whole separate programming for kids in fact which a lot of conventions don't have but uh but everybody just everybody just you just get a feeling everybody's just having a lot of fun and of course now if you're into collecting godzilla stuff as i am you know you i I still just about pass out every time i step into the dealer's room even after all these years (laughs) you know it's just kind of overwhelming you know and then it's uh, it's kind of amazing yeah it really is um and the prices will overwhelm you too you don't get any bargains in there i tell you that much but if anybody collects godzilla stuff knows that you know most godzilla stuff they make it sells out real quick and then the prices double and triple real quickly so yeah, uh, you will spend some money, but uh, but yeah, but it's it's just a great experience. It really is. They do a lot of cool stuff. Had some cool guests there. I mean, this year, of course, uh, this year they had uh, he's about his I think his third appearance at G Fest. They had uh, Kira Takarada, who uh, was in the very first Godzilla film and and some others as well. But he was in the 1954 Godzilla and uh, still looks great in his 80s. You know, he's doing great for his age. But he uh, it's he's just a great guest to have. Just a really real gentleman. And uh, some other great guests as well. They'll have a lot of. They have a lot of people. They had the director of the great Gamera '90s trilogy was there again this year. Uh, um, Kaneko uh, Suzuki uh, Suzuki Kaneko uh, was there this year, and so that was cool to see him as always. Well, he made a good Godzilla film too. He did GMK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All Monsters Attack. Yeah, he did a did a very good film. But uh, man, I, I'm gonna have to go back to that. One yeah, you need to get back to one one time. Yeah, the thing yeah. is, I just I can't miss Monster Bash. I know they are so close. They to are. That's a tough thing, man. They're just a one-two punch to the wallet there that I can. You know, I'm hoping yeah. to treat myself to a Monster Bash again in a couple of years for sure because uh, that is an incredible convention. I know you came from that just a few weeks ago and had an awesome yeah. time, and I was I was killing me to see all the, you know, the all pictures the cool and all the stuff, all the stuff. Yeah, I was stuff. like, man, I wish I was there. Yeah. It's it, it is such a blast, and every year Monster Bash is uh, it's just a huge joy. It just mm-hmm. it's all all the people you get to to hang around, the people you only get to really see once a year or mm-hmm. so, and then uh, there's a killer deal. That's a, that's a killer that's a great dealer room. room too. Yes, it is. Uh, well, at any rate, folks, Troy and I are going to take a, a brief break here, and then when we come back, we're going to dive deeply into the joys of the Black Cat from 1941. Vampires. Werewolves. Zombies. Yes, these things are real. But fortunately for those of us who can afford him, so is Mark Temple. And he's good. Real good. He's a former FBI agent turned freelancer with the knowledge and skills to eliminate your monster problems. And his rates are negotiable. 
Monster Hunter for Hire, the first volume of the Supernatural Solutions, the Mark Temple Case Files, is now available in both ebook and paperback. Go to tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple to buy your copy of Derek M. Cook's latest book. Read about Mark Temple, the experienced professional now available to rid you of your supernatural, ghoulish, and monstrous pests. That's tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple. And don't worry, Mark Temple is discreet. It's 1966. The space race is on. The Cold War is heating up. And giant monsters are destroying Japan. Daikaiju Attack from award winning author Stephen D. Sullivan. Now available in all ebook formats on Amazon, Smashwords, Drive Through Fiction, and other quality outlets. Find more info at daikaijuattack.com sdsullivan.com and the Daikaiju Attack Group on Facebook. Join the action today. This is an old dark house film, and if you were to just pay attention to the trailer, you would think that it was probably a pretty straight little horror chiller kind of thing, but clearly it's kind of partially comedy. We've got at least one character who's built to be nothing but mm-hmm. a comedic foil, someone mm-hmm. to who seems to be kind of there to do stupid shit and mm-hmm. make bad jokes. Yeah, yeah. Although occasionally some of the jokes are pretty Some okay. can be a yeah, but... Although honestly, the the smashing furniture joke needed to end after like once or twice. Yeah, over yes, way way overdone with that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it just was kind of a staple of a lot of these of these films is the the comic relief character that they you know I think in tone thematically or you know in to- tonally this film probably of the films we've covered so far. Yeah, the two films that it 
I guess could be closest compared to would be The Invisible Woman and uh, and Horror Island in terms of you know films that really were meant to be pretty breezy. Yeah, definitely had a had a comic relief character or two in there. I think you're right. I think you're right. And so what we have here is what we what we what we've encountered in the '40s multiple times, and we'll continue to encounter as we go through this decade with Universal Horror, mm-hmm. is that they're trying to dial down the adult nature of their mm-hmm. horror output mm-hmm. and the easiest fastest mm-hmm. way to do that is to inject humor yeah uh, not necessarily juvenile humor although sometimes that is what mm-hmm. we end up with in some of these pictures but to try to inject enough mm-hmm. humor into it so mm-hmm. that it seems less offensive to have some of these horror elements popping out at mm-hmm. you and we can also point out that one of the films that was key and as a catalyst to all this was the earlier version of the Black Cat that was incredibly <laughs> unsavory and kinky and uh, just all kinds of strange uh, perversions yeah. going on in there. And uh, yeah, yeah. Universal's uh, head people did, did head head office did not <laughs> take too kindly to it, and so it was really a big a big reason for for uh, why these why they started to clamp down on this stuff. Yes, indeed. Uh, if you're unaware of the uh, the strange goings on about mm-hmm. how the uh, the 1934 Black mm-hmm. Cat got uh, made by Edgar Ulmer. Mm-hmm. Um, let me refer you to the new Blu-ray that yeah. that Shout Factory or Scream Factory has just put out as part of their first Universal set and uh, reference Greg Mank's excellent mm-hmm. commentary it track where he'll lay it all out for yeah. you. Yeah. Although I read it years ago in his book yeah. <laughs> about yeah. about the, uh, the, uh, the, the Karloff Lugosi book, which is just mm. chock full of all the details on that story. And, it's, yeah. and yeah, mm. <laughs> you want to know, folks? Reshoots are not a new occurrence in Hollywood. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> when you go too far, yeah. <laughs> a film has to get reeled back in. Yeah, yeah. But this is not a film here from 1941 no. that was going to have to get reeled back no. in. Uh, Nothing this one, to offend anyone in this film. So. No, not really. So what we have here is an, another old dark house film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this this is happening because just a couple of years before the, the remake of uh, The Cat and the Canary was made, it was a huge hit once mm. again in '39, and so mm. in the in the next few years there mm. were a spate of old dark movie old dark house movies again. Yeah, the old dark house movies had kind of fallen out of favor uh, as the '30s perked on because there was of course the old dark house in 1932, mm. which was a mm. humongous hit, mm. and therefore there were a lot of imitators there in the '30s and with independence and with and with with actual studios as well. But they'd kind of fallen out of favor, and almost immediately the old dark house mm. formula fell into the kind of... Uh, I, won't, I don't want to say they fell into disrepair, but mm-hmm, they immediately yeah. got adopted as a good <clears throat> template to mm-hmm. use for a horror comedy. Yeah. So what you have is a setting mm-hmm. that you know gives you the the gothic kind of creepiness, yeah. and then we can ladle on the, the funny situations and the comic characters, and hopefully mm-hmm. those two things mesh well enough mm-hmm. that it comes off well. Um, this was another one of those films. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is... From what Tom Weaver has to say, and and he's the man who's done the research, so I'm gonna I'm gonna abide by what he says. It does appear that what we had here was kind of the unlikely and unwieldy melding of kind of two different ideas, which mm-hmm. is a straight chiller, yeah, a straight little old dark house chiller mm-hmm. with a mystery at its center, mm-hmm. and then a couple of comedy writers being brought in to inject mm-hmm. humor into it mm-hmm. so that it kind of lightens the mood and the tone. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm just going to say, it. this movie could be worse, okay? Yeah, this yeah. movie could be oh, yeah. less funny, mm-hmm. less creepy, mm-hmm. less atmospheric, and mm-hmm. just less entertaining. Mm-hmm. And at 70 minutes, it definitely does not overstay its welcome. No, it does but not. But the 
broad kind of humor that's in this movie is funny sometimes. Yeah. And then at times, it gets kind of grating. Yeah. At least for me. Yeah, yeah. It's the same problem we've had with 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 some of the. I mean, we had this to some degree, and and I think in Invisible Woman as well. You yeah. know, it's, it's it's sometimes the humor works, sometimes it's just, and sometimes it can all just come down to where it's placed or how it's filmed. You know, but sometimes it just gets to be a little too much. You know, he said that two or three less scenes of it would would be going a long way towards improving that. And I think when you get down to it, I mean, there's always a it's always a good indicator. Um, the uh, who, a good indicator during the this period of time is who was chosen to direct the picture. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the guy who was chosen is a guy named Albert Rogel, mm-hmm. or Rogel. I'm not sure how his last Yeah, I'm not sure how you, how you pronounce that either. But. but, I mean, he directed a lot of films. I mean, mm-hmm. his career directing movies started back in the early 20s in the silent era, of course. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, he definitely had a handle on how to make a movie. But at the same time, when you look at his list of credits... Yeah, there are a few programmer mysteries in there. He did a couple mm-hmm. of the Lone Wolf series of mystery programmers, which is cool. Yeah. yeah. Those are fine. I understand that as uh, someone who might have the chops to make a mm-hmm. film that's set mm-hmm. in this kind of mm-hmm. milieu, but at the same time... Yeah, the fact that there's not really any true hard credits to on his, on his resume there. Well, kinda, not kinda only kinda. that, the movie he made right before this was the adaptation of Lil Abner. Yeah, yeah. And that should tell you kind of where the head of the people assigning directors at Universal was, which was, Mm -hmm. this is the kind of film that the guy who made Lil Abner is going to be perfect for. So that's Mm -hmm. clearly what they were Mm -hmm. aiming for. Sure. Um, The budget was $176,000. The (laughs) script is an uneasy melding of things mm. that I don't know necessarily yeah. needed to be together, you yeah. know, to, on their own. And it lists four writers. Yeah. And if you look at, like, you know, talking about what the director's resume looked at, look at the writer. Robert Lees and, and Frank yeah. and Fred Ronaldo together were also writers on The Invisible Woman, Hold That Ghost, you know, Abbott yep. Costello, Meet Frankenstein, which is one of the great horror comedies, but again, comedies, you know, like, right. and so that tells you, again, what they were trying to go for there. And what you end up with here with this 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 group of people behind the scenes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is a little inoffensive, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. comedy with some chiller elements. Yeah, yeah. It's got a central mystery that isn't all that intriguing, mm-hmm. and it it, it 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 doesn't have a lot that really mm-hmm. draws you toward it as far as the mystery is concerned. Because, like mm-hmm. I say, everybody and their grandmother knows it ain't going to be Bella Lugosi mm-hmm. because there's it's, he's, he's just the obvious red yeah, herring, he's, so. yeah it's like you know well and, and yeah exactly when you, and you've got two heavies in this point you know with you yeah. got both Basil Rathbone and Bella Lugosi and we love seeing both those guys great seeing Basil Rathbone you know in anything and oh yeah but uh, the setup too you mentioned uh, the familiarity of what they're doing here is, is, is this whole beginning where you've got a family a dysfunctional family yeah, waiting for either someone to die, or in, if if it's a case where someone's already died and they're waiting for the will to be read. But in either case, you know they're all kind of the vultures waiting for the feeding frenzy on to see what they've been left. We've seen that in a million movies, and it's a fun. I mean, it's it's always makes for kind of a fun setting because you, True. you know, you're always going to end up with they're every you know they set up the motives for and make everybody kind of an untrustworthy. Or, you know, that's a possible suspect kind of thing. The. The joys in this film are to be found by fans of films made of this period, mm-hmm. and so let, well, let's, let's let's talk about the let's talk about the the joys within it, and I'll get to some of the mm-hmm. some of the details of some of the things that I really really enjoy about this as we go along. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll once again be using uh, 
Tom Weaver's Universal Horrors book mm-hmm. for our synopsis and a jumping off point for our discussion of this uh, as we go through the plot. Uh, the curtains open to the ominous strains of Frank Skinner's main title for Tower of London, mm-hmm. uh, followed by an appropriate but amusing shot of a black cat slinking down a tree branch. Mm-hmm. The cat's electronically distorted meows add a spooky touch. This uh, brief clip of the cat actually ended up seven years later in the film The Creeper, the little indie, oh, indie, indie okay. film The Creeper. So yeah. uh, it looks like they bought that film footage <laughs> from uh, Universal to use in okay. their film. The mood is sustained as the scene shifts to the living room of a sprawling estate where the relatives of ailing Henrietta Winslow await the news of the dowager's latest brush with death from the family doctor. As young Richard Harley, that would be Alan Ladd, a very young Alan Ladd, hammers out a mock funeral dirge on the piano, the rest of the greedy group, dressed to the nines as if they were at the wake of a head of state, Mm -hmm. can hardly conceal their disappointment when it is reported that Henrietta is well on the road to recovery. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, they're Mm -hmm. all, all (laughs) waiting for this old woman to croak. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I do think, first of all, this scene sets everything up perfectly. Yeah, yeah. And it does not give you much in the way of sympathy for any of these characters no. because they all do seem, mm. to one degree or another, yeah. a little disappointed that mm. she has not croaked already. Right. Well, Henrietta, the dow- the, the 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 old uh, ailing uh, dowager, Henrietta assembles the group. <laughs> she she wheels out there yeah. in her in her in her wheelchair. And she's she's got the look of someone who does not look like she was on death's door mm. recently. No. She's got the look of somebody who's coming out, come out there and has got a baseball bat hidden under that shawl and <laughs> yeah. is about to start whacking people in the head. <laughs> well, Henrietta assembles the group and relieves them of their anxieties by reading her last will and testament to mm-hmm. them. And she's having a lot of fun doing mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I get big props mm-hmm. to the actress uh, mm-hmm. Cecilia Loftus who yeah. plays. Uh-huh. Uh, Henrietta, mm-hmm. because this this old lady is having a ball. Mm-hmm. I don't know how, what her uh, what I don't know what her uh, feelings were about making this movie, but I can tell you right now, yeah, oh, her on screen persona oh, is one great. of somebody yeah. having a blast. Yep. Well, granddaughter Elaine, who's played by the lovely Anne Gwen, Anne Gwen, yes, is heavily favored in the legacy, but Henrietta fails to mention a strange stipulation in her will. They kind of get interrupted as she's laying yeah. out how much money, which mm. are large sums of money, yeah. Yeah. that are going to be doled out to mm. each one of her rather greedy relatives. But they get interrupted by the arrival of some uh, of of, a, of another couple of characters. We'll talk about in a moment, mm-hmm. and so that she doesn't get to the, her favorite part part in this will, which is that no money is going to be dispersed after her death until. Her housekeeper, Abigail Dune, until she dies. Yeah. And the reason for this is that Henrietta has is leaving the responsibility of caring for her pet cats, of which there are 50, yes. dozens of them, uh-huh. who saunter about the estate by the dozens. And here's the kicker. If you yes. pay attention, what she yeah. said is that essentially until the housekeeper dies, uh-huh. y'all don't get no money. Yeah. And the housekeeper seemed kind of happy about this idea and my thoughts would have been, I cannot be happy about this. Now all these crazy fucking greedy bastards are going to want me dead. They literally yeah. have no reason for me to breathe. Yeah, but I think if you're Gail Sondergaard, you just fear no human being on the planet. You know? Well, <laughs> like, she talk, is yeah. talk about somebody else who has fun in a role. Well, Gail Sondergaard is she. She's the, she's Abigail, the mm. the the housekeeper, mm-hmm. and uh, she is wonderful in this movie. I love. Yeah, she I think really, she's terrific. Truly in the movie. is. 
Uh, if you don't, if you if you don't know who we're talking about, you might know her uh, if you're a fan of films from this period of time. She was she played Inez in the wonderful Tyrone Power film, The Mark of Zorro, which is one mm, of the mm-hmm, great adventure mm-hmm, films mm-hmm, of all time. If mm-hmm, you've not oh, seen yes, yes. The Mark of Zorro from 1940, please let mm-hmm. me point you toward that movie and see it as quickly. I thought she was going to say, "Please let me punch you in the face." But uh, no, 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 you're being nice to me. No, no, no. So. I want people to see The Mark yeah. of Zorro because The Mark of Zorro is a truly fantastic movie. And uh, she's great in it, but then that whole film is just mm-hmm. absolutely wonderful. But Gail Sundergaard was in a lot of really great movies, and several that I still want to see and haven't. Mm-hmm. I've been I've wanted to see the Strange Death of Adolf Hitler from 1943 <laughs> yeah. for a lot of years, <laughs> and I've still never seen the uh, the Return of the Spider Woman. Tell me either, and I guess we'll be hitting that at some point. There, the Spider Woman well, films, I, right? Or I not? guess, I guess, I don't know. Are those Universal films? Well, maybe they're not. You know, you may be right. They may not be Universal I, I think, films. Well, it's the Spider Woman Strikes. I've heard back. of those films. The Spider Woman yeah. Strikes Back is the one that, as soon as you read about the Spider Woman Strikes Back, mm-hmm. it's like it, even without Gail Sondergaard in it, I want to see this movie. A young girl goes to work as a live-in caretaker for a spooky old woman. She doesn't know that every night the woman drains some blood from her to feed her strange, strange plant. It's like. <laughs> That's called The Spider-Woman Strikes Back? Where's my copy of it? I know. That does sound like a must. That does sound like a must-see. But Gail Sondergaard, you're right, is having a blast in this. Although, amusingly enough, Tom Weaver does uh, does take the opportunity to inform us that uh, she was not... She didn't think much of this movie. Uh, (laughs) That's funny. Um in Greg Mank's book, uh, Women in Horror Films of the 1940s, uh, Gail Sondergaard bluntly recalled, I hated doing the thing. It was beneath me. <laughs> no, go ahead. She said, well, it, it, well, as, as, uh, as uh, Tom Weaver says, it was no doubt a sentiment shared by many of her colleagues, but at least Sondergaard keeps busy in a comparatively substantial role as the Mrs. Danvers clone, Abigail Dune. Now, the Mrs. Danvers clone, what he's referring to there is the classic Hitchcock film, mm-hmm. uh, Rebecca, yeah. where uh, a, a, a rather, um, shall we say, creepy or sinister uh, housekeeper mm-hmm. is kind of the uh, the boogeyman mm-hmm. in that particular film. If you've never seen Rebecca, let me that, just tell you, you need to go see Rebecca as well. Yes, yes. But uh, once or twice the actress can be glimpsed suppressing a smile in spite of mm-hmm. her public comments. Her startling mad laughter, the highlight of her performance, might sound foolish coming from anyone else, but a seasoned pro like Sondergaard gives it a dotty, goosebumpy oh. conviction. Oh, yeah. One of, my, one of my favorite scenes, definitely my favorite scene of her, and really one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie, is the scene where she's explaining to them the part of the will that yeah. they didn't get to hear. She's taking such glee in the fact that they have to basically pack up and get out. And it's just, she's just <laughs> chewing it up and relishing she that. Loves and reading about her, I, some things that I, you know, I really didn't know a whole lot about Gail Sondergaard. And some interesting little tidbits is that she won the first Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress ever, and I didn't I did know that it was that. for a movie called Anthony Adverse, which I've never heard of. But she won the very first uh, Supporting Actress Academy Award. Um, she also turned down the role of the Wicked Witch in Wizard of Oz, which makes perfect sense that yeah. she would be considered for that. Uh, and uh, and it's interesting that in this film we're covering tonight, she's playing the kind of role that Margaret Hamilton would play a million times too. The the role of the how kind of like the housekeeper yeah. kind of role. Although Gail Sundergaard, the much more I hate to put it this bluntly, much more attractive woman in my Well opinion. sure, yeah. But yeah, yeah, that's that's true. That's true. But the other thing I wanted to throw out here is that uh, she 
ended up being blacklisted because she refused to testify in the McCarthy hearings, which automatically makes her a heroic figure in my eyes. I, I agree. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Well, uh, one reason why she's probably uh, she was probably uh, eyed to be in this film and in a role of this type was because she was in that 1939 remake of Cat in the Canary as well. Oh yeah, right. So this is mm. you know this is not this would be an mm. easy thing for a public only two years previous they'd mm. seen this particular very striking actress in a, mm. in a similar type of old dark house story. Yeah. So there you go. So really, I hadn't thought about it, but we actually have not one, not two, but three actors that had already become recognizable to the audience as heavies. You know, yeah, and Lugosi, yeah. Rathbone, and Gail Sondergaard. That you already have three kind of people up ahead of time that could that that people are going to expect to be up to no good or sinister or villainous. Well, the good news for us is that we'll get to talk about her again in one of the Invisible Man sequels uh-huh, okay, down cool. the road. Cool. And who knows? I don't know if I'll be able to hold back myself back from watching the watching the Spider Woman Strikes Back. I'm just going to have yeah, to see that movie. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, but you know, feeding blood to a plant uh, that's that's right up my alley, buddy. Now, Richard, that's no attitude to take. The important thing is that your grandmother's out of danger. <laughs> Do you expect me to believe that, Monty? You're disappointed, and you know it. Grandmother, what are you doing out of bed? I wanted to be in the bosom of my loving family. Well, you go right back to your room. You're still a sick woman, you know. Elaine, that's no way to talk to your grandmother. Stop there for polishing, Monty. Grandmother isn't going to loan you any money. What do you mean, talking to me like that? Be quiet. That's her. Henrietta Winslow. And she's dead? Yeah. No, no, no. She's fooled them again. She's got more lives than her cats. Oh, I can't wait that long. Come on, let's go. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Come here. This must be a sad occasion for all of you. Came to bury me, and now you feel you have to stay and praise me. Since my paralysis, you've all come running to my bedside every time I had a stomachache. Well, I decided to read my will and set your minds at rest. You're being impossible, grandmother. Don't interrupt. Okay, now the thing that interrupted the uh, the detailing of. Uh, mm this rather interesting will earlier was the arrival of uh, a pair, well, a, a pair of antique dealers, quote-unquote antique dealers. Antique dealers Gil Smith, played by Broderick Crawford, and Mr. Penny, played by Hugh Herbert. Mm-hmm. They arrive at the estate at the request of Henrietta's, son in, Henrietta's son-in-law, Montague Hartley, who is played by Basil Rathbone. Mm-hmm. They're there to appraise the furnishings. Uh, and actually, it's Mr. Penny who's there to appraise the furnishings uh, because uh, Gill has been led to believe, the Broderick Crawford character has been led to believe by the Basil Rathbone character that mm-hmm. the one's going to kick off tonight and mm-hmm. we're going to be able to like sell this place and all yeah. the crap in it. Yeah, Gill has obviously been a friend of the family or known the family apparently for his years. whole life for years. Yeah. yeah, And so he has a background with the family, which is why mm-hmm. he, would be, he would be contacted for, mm-hmm. for this in the first place. But he also has some actual affection for Henrietta because he grew up near this yeah. place. Mm-hmm. But he has one problem about this house that uh, we should bring up, which is that poor Gil, Mm -hmm. guy, he's allergic to cats. Yeah, yeah. So as soon as the cats, as soon as a cat enters the room, Mm -hmm. he's got problems. He's sneezing, his Mm -hmm. eyes are watering, and it's just not a good, not good, not a good situation for Gil. Mm -hmm. So you can see why he's kind of always been a little bit leery of this place. But then Mm -hmm. at the same time, there is a certain female Mm -hmm. that. Grew up there in that house. Yeah, yeah. That has turned into quite a young yes. lady, mm-hmm. and that would be one reason to keep drawing mm-hmm. Gil Smith back to this location. So mm-hmm. that would be Elaine, who's played by Anne Gwynn. 
Correct. Miss Miss Gwen. Uh, Anne Gwen. Mm. Shall we talk about Anne Gwen sure, for a let's second? Do. Not sure if if the listener is aware of uh, who Anne Gwen was, but where you might have seen her is, oh, well, let's see. She plays a, a prominent role in House of Frankenstein, which mm-hmm. is a movie, of course, we'll get yeah. to later on. Mm-hmm. She was in one of the Dick Tracy films, Moon Over Las Vegas. She was in one of the uh, <laughs> one of the Inner Sanctum films oh, that we'll, yes. we'll end up we talking about. Talking she, was, she was in Weird Woman. Mm-hmm. A very interesting character in Weird Woman, yeah. I might add. Uh, she was in the uh, 1944 remake of Murder in the Blue Room, so that would be yet another mm, yeah. old dark house story. I, was like the, I think that was like the third version yeah. of yeah. <laughs> Murder, in the Blue, Murder in the Blue Room. I can't remember how many versions of that there were. But she was in a whole lot of different kinds of films, lots of, of course, 1940s westerns as well, but also a neat little weird one from Universal called The Strange Case of Dr. Rx, mm-hmm. which is a, a weird, a, a, it's a rare one. Mm-hmm. Um, I, think that I don't think I've ever seen it. I've heard of it, but I've never seen it. It was put out uh, on one of those burn-on-demand DVDs mm-hmm. by Universal a few years ago, mm-hmm. and I do believe it's going to get a much wider release later this year, so you might actually finally get a chance mm-hmm. to see this movie. It's a rare one for people, and I it doesn't turn up very often mm-hmm. on even things like Turner Classics either, so... Um, She's good in that, and it's a very it's 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 a very interesting film, and I I, I, w- I wish more people were aware of the strange case of Doctor RX so that there could be uh, more discussion of it. But I'm assuming that we will get to it. We so. shall, we shall. But Anne Gwynn is a uh, shall we call her a fetching lass? Yes, she is. Yes, she nothing is. nothing wrong with that that woman that uh, nope. a whole a whole lot of hugging and kissing just wouldn't appear. <laughs> so as an antique dealer, Mister Penny, what do you think of this road? Oh, I, I hate to meet the worms that made those holes. Woo-hoo. Well. We're almost there. Hey, I still think we should have waited until after the funeral. No, Hartley hasn't got a sentimental bone in his body. He told me this morning that it's only a matter of minutes before Henrietta Winslow's death, and if I wanted to make a deal for the estate, I'd better bring an offer from my client tonight. It's shocking, shocking. What do you mean, selling the house while the death rattle is still rattling? Uh, precisely, absolutely. Oh, that Hartley's a bit of a rattler himself. Yeah. Are you sure the relatives want to sell the furniture too? Want to sell it? They're so anxious to cash in and get out, we'll be lucky if they don't leave the body there. Terrible, terrible. Everybody's money man. Everybody's money man. Including me. <laughs> Gil gets there with uh, Mr. Penny and discovers in the nick of time that someone has... Well, I love this. He's sitting down and it's it, it's a great scene because it, it communicates that as much as Gil wants to strike this deal mm. to sell this place, mm. and as much as Henrietta definitely is not going to do it... Mm. The conversation where the two of them sit down and talk, it's really nice because there's real affection between mm, these two yeah. characters, and they yeah. and these actors communicate it well. They do. And Gil's frustrated, and he's trying mm. to talk her into it, mm-hmm. and he's but he's not being an asshole about no. it. He's no. not a dick. He's pressing no. his point, mm-hmm. but he's not being a jerk. Yeah. And that's really nice, and I love that scene. It and it's in scene. this scene when someone... When uh, the housekeeper brings in a, a glass of milk mm-hmm. for Henrietta to drink, mm-hmm. and it gets set down, and a mysterious hand yeah. creeps out and puts something into the milk. Yeah, and there's a lot of uh, convenient curtains and alcoves that hands can reach out of and almost grab somebody's shoulder or steal something out of a scene. You know, it's one of the yep. that's one of the classic elements in these kind of films. That, well, it's a creepy old house. Yeah, and that's, it is. And, yeah, and, and, yeah. And, one of the best things about it, if you want to talk atmosphere, really is this house seat, this yeah. house set, yeah. this this whole thing. It Secret looks, passages and all that yeah. good stuff. Yeah, Stair- of course, knights and, and or- suits of armor. Woodwork. Of course, yeah, got to have a suit of armor. Su- yeah, suits of armor. Yeah, or- ornate woodwork. Yeah, um, 
<laughs> lots lots of really fancy doors to yeah. be, to go in and out of. Yeah. Lots of rooms with lots of bric-a-brac from, you know, yeah. centuries past. Big so. paintings of past relatives that amazing. You know, I'm surprised we never got the cut out eyes following anyone around the room. They missed that one. I was waiting for it. I was waiting for it. Yeah. It's always coming. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can't stick every old dark house cliche into every old dark house film. The thing would just explode. It would. <laughs> or it would turn into Clue. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, luckily, Gil doesn't drink the milk and neither does Henrietta, mm. but he does feed some of the, the milk to mm. one of the cats. Yeah. And the cat kills over dead. Mm-hmm. And so nobody dies from the poison milk, but now. Gil is well aware, and so is Henrietta, that somebody's trying mm. to murder her. So yeah. this is our first indication. Hey, shit is afoot. People mm. is trying to murder peoples. Mm-hmm. Let's get some things going here, yeah. right? So things here's get also, kicked into gear. Yeah. And here's also where we find out that uh, the house also has connected to it a crematorium, which is made just for the cats to uh, to be disposed of when they end out there. So, yeah. Let's talk about the crematorium because... <laughs> yeah. Talk about interesting sets. Yeah, I, I wouldn't yeah. call it necessarily creepy, but... Well, we, yeah, you have a crematorium mm-hmm. for this woman to because she takes in stray cats, mm-hmm. she lets them roam the entire place. They're mm-hmm. kind of she's a crazy old cat lady. Right, she yeah, really is, absolutely. But she's built this 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 mausoleum just for the cats, and mm-hmm. when the cats die, she mm-hmm. burns them, and then she mm-hmm. puts their ashes into <laughs> an urn, and she yeah. has. Uh, this you know this whole place has nothing but nooks with all yeah. these urns full yeah. of you know cat dust. Yeah, it's incredibly it's, odd. It is, and it almost seems to have a strange Egyptian sort of motif to the you know with the uh, like it, the cat com- statues yeah. almost make you think a bast or something. And right, they know. don't. They never call it. That, they but never. That's, that's sort of what with you, that Egyptian yeah. motif that really yeah. is clearly mm-hmm. supposed to be a, a statue yeah. of bast. Mm-hmm. And what I kept thinking was, so they don't call it. They don't call it. You know the Egyptian god Bast. They they mm. pointedly yeah. walk around right. saying that. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm thinking to myself, that's the cat statue they had. Yeah, in the on the back lot. <laughs> I was yes, I was. Thinking so that's that. what yeah, they use. Yeah, and it's just like, be, well, we're just yeah. not going to call it that because there's no point. <laughs> yeah, and it won't matter anyway. But it's like you look at it and you go, well, all this Egyptian crap around. That's what that is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why don't you? Why don't you just go ahead and say it? But they never did. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's very odd. So, uh, well, soon after this, uh, Henrietta takes that. Mm. Poor cat that gets poisoned mm-hmm. out there too, and she she turns it into cat dust. Yeah, <laughs> but while she's out there, uh, she gets murdered. She gets mm. killed. Someone yeah. comes out of a secret room there mm. in that mausoleum and uh, stabs her to death with a knitting needle. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, the movie is edited in such a way. I'm guessing to soften um, the violence. Yeah. yeah, I think so. Yeah, so that it's actually. Yeah, we have to be told after yeah. the fact exactly what happened because mm-hmm. the editing is so tight mm-hmm. and awkward yeah. that, like I say, they're trying to avoid the the one instance of real you know murderous violence in the film. Yeah, and it's um, it's a little strange because mm-hmm. it, it is a, a kind of hiccup in the movie where mm-hmm. everything is being told effectively, whether yeah. you think it's you well, know, whether the, you think it's intriguing enough or not. Well, the only other moment I can think of is there's later in the film where someone gets, you know, basically hit on, knocked out, or hit on the back of the head. And that's also edited in such a way that it takes a second to really, where you're sort of disoriented about how it yeah. happens, you know, because they tried also to, don't want to show any actual violence. So you have to kind of infer what's happened. Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, I have to. Yeah, you're right. You know there's, a lot of, yeah. there's a lot of yeah. inference in yeah. some of the violence. Mm-hmm. And I, I've seen this in a number of uh, 1940s uh, serials because mm-hmm. I, I kind of I really love going through mm-hmm. uh, the, the serials made in the 1940s. The ones in the 1930s and, the, you know, right at the right at the very beginning of 1940, 
the violence is still what you would expect from a movie of the period. But once you get into the 40s, these things were obviously geared for a younger, a, let's call it a juvenile audience. They were, you know, they were Saturday matinee fodder. So there was a, a, a definite attempt to soften the violence, which, of course, means that you've got, you know, you've got what I refer to as the goddamn A-team situation, oh, yes, which right, is a million yeah. bullets get fired. And the only thing that gets killed is is underbrush and trees. And so. Even when yeah. someone actually is killed with a gun or a knife mm-hmm. or whatever, we cut away from it so we don't see the violence. Mm-hmm. We see like the you know the arm descending yeah. and then everything is out of frame. And it's yeah. and it's it's something that if I were less knowledgeable, I would just accept it as some kind of stylistic choice. Mm. But it's not that. It's no. that they weren't not allowed. They were trying yeah. desperately to move away from oh, yeah. showing that stuff right. so they didn't get in trouble with the you know the Hayes the Hayes mm. office. Yeah, so yeah. It's uh, something that could irritate. And sometimes actually does. In this case, it kind of irritates me because, mm-hmm. I, like I say, in the next couple of scenes, we had to be told yeah. how she, what happened mm-hmm. there, what was that mm-hmm. all about? And it's mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, she got stabbed with a knitting, yeah. knitting needle. Thank God we were Bec- saved from a vision because, of that. Well, because they have the characters just quickly jump to the conclusion that oh, she must just fallen on the needle. You know, she just, she just <laughs> yeah. Uh, you and know, it's just, like, well, no, <laughs> yeah, she was definitely stabbed. Any, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, okay, much to their dismay, the family learns of Henrietta's provision for Abigail and the cats at this point, mm. because now she's dead. And so <laughs> Abigail gets to lord this over them oh, and have that geez, amazing yeah. laugh. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Monty, that would be uh, the Basil Rathbone character, mm-hmm. of course flips the hell out, oh, because yeah. we've we've overheard Monty talking to uh, some kind of creditor over a phone mm-hmm. line at, mm-hmm. at, uh, a little earlier in the film, mm-hmm. and it's clear that he is in desperate need of cash. Mm-hmm. He really really need some money. Mm. So Monty moves to have the will contested. Uh, and he's, so he storms off to go talk to, to go into town to uh, see his lawyers. Uh, soon after this, once Monty kind of gets back, uh, he informs us that the, the storm that's been going on outside has washed out the bridge. Mm-hmm. And so nothing's going to happen for the rest of this night. The storm has stranded the entire group there in the house. And so, of course, now we have what all all, all old Dark House movies have to have, which is a group of desperate characters and disparate characters yes. stranded together yeah. in a place they can't get out of for some mm-hmm. period of time. Mm-hmm. And there's a murderer loose. Yeah, yes. But... That's the engine that's supposed to drive this thing, and but it it really doesn't have a lot of forward momentum, and mm-hmm. that's that's the problem with this movie is mm-hmm. that it's a it's a swift seventy minutes mm-hmm. long, mm-hmm. and then at it, at this point, once we have the murder, mm-hmm. well, then the question should be, who's the murderer? Mm-hmm. But I never I, I hate to say it this way, but I never really get invested mm-hmm. in that mystery, mm-hmm. and it's I'm not sure exactly why, except. Well, part of it is that we're constantly having the story interrupted for the comic yeah, bits. Yeah, yeah. And so once the comic bits come along, and I think about one in four of the comic bits is funny, yeah. which is not a good ratio as far yeah, as I'm concerned. Yeah, there's way too much time. It's it's the I mean, let's let's go ahead, I guess, and just, just say Hugh Herbert plays yeah. Mr. Penny. Uh, yeah, I didn't really know anything about Hugh Herbert, I'd probably seen him in a couple of things, and just I yeah. mean, I didn't really, you know, I mean, he certainly had a plenty of credits, and 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 was apparently had a had a great career, and and he's he's, I mean, he's fine with with obviously he had this certain kind of character he played, and apparently, right. um, apparently his little giggle that he gives often was was as part of the inspiration for uh, Daffy Duck's character. You know, Daffy Duck does that sometimes, oh, and yeah, apparently, okay. apparently that was an inspiration for, but. Uh, 
but yeah, this uh, because there's, there's, there's one part in the film where that it's funny or it's okay if it's used once because they're all tense to the point where they just already know there's a murder about everybody's tense and the, right. the suit of armor starts to come out of the starts to come out of the wall apparently of its own you know volition and right. then it turns out it's just you know Mr. Penny who's basically unaware of anything else in the whole film except the items that he's appraising. You know, and he bring, it turns out he's actually the one moving the, the suit of armor. Okay, maybe that's funny once, but they repeat that motif in various a ways a couple more times more, and that's when you just start to kind of roll your eyes and like, okay, come on, get on with it, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like I say, I've seen him in a number of films. He's usually mm-hmm. in small roles. Mm-hmm. Um, he's in one of my favorite weirdly titled movies of all time from, 19, from 1937, the bizarre little film, Shh! The octopus. Oh, yes, yes, I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, that is just a, a completely odd film, yeah. as you might be able to tell from any movie that has shh with an exclamation point as <laughs> yeah. only part of its title. <laughs> but um, he always plays, you know, a variation on this kind of character, and he always has really interesting character names too. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Horatio Gillingwater, yeah, <laughs> Siegfried Hammerschlag. <laughs> a lot of Huberts. Yeah, yeah. A lot of Huberts. Cedric, Toto, Hugo, <laughs> Hoffbauer. So, you know, th- th- yeah. it's clear that this guy's always playing a variation on the character. We see mm-hmm. him playing in mm-hmm. this movie. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I got to say that I think that in a film with a sharper script mm-hmm. I probably like him a lot more yeah yeah because he has an interesting comic persona I need less of the nervous giggle yeah I agree that's over it gets, it gets over yeah. it gets overdone in the first mm-hmm. 30 minutes of the yeah. movie and then we've yeah. still got another yeah. 40 minutes mm-hmm. where he's gonna randomly pop up and occasionally mm-hmm. give that that yeah. sound out of his throat yeah. which I don't find amusing mm-hmm. and the there's too many reoccurring gags with him, and they're mm-hmm. they're not. I didn't find it fun. Okay, first of all, his idea that he's appraising all the furniture in the place, and and the joke is that his his line is, "Well, you have to make it look old, like you know, like worm like worms have been at it. So we'll take yeah, a drill and we'll drill yeah. holes in this stuff, and it can be sold yeah. as an antique." Yeah. and it's like that's a stupid, mm-hmm. b not funny, mm-hmm. and c. Once you've done that joke yes. four times yeah. in this movie, yeah. and it is done mm-hmm. four times yeah. in this movie, yeah, uh, I didn't laugh the first time. So every yeah. time it pops up, I'm going, "Oh no!" Yeah, again. I agree. I agree. It's it's yeah. It's it's yeah. Yeah. Just 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 too much. Yeah. Just a little bit of that went way too too long away. <laughs> yeah. And, um, so let's talk also about the other half of this duo who's kind of our main oh, yeah, hero Roger figure yeah. Brother Crawford who's uh, most people now I don't know how much I don't know if he played this this seemed to me to be an odd kind of character for him to play but then again I know there's kind a lot of, yeah. of his filmography you know what we know him of is obviously things from Highway Patrol and more serious roles so I don't know how much in the way of com- comedic acting he did early on, but it's it's I don't know. comedic. I, it's well, he's not comedic in this film. Well, he's not. He's but a straight. He's, he's, he's a straight true. man. He's yeah. true, but he's kind of a little bit of a schlub, though. I mean, a lovable schlub. I mean, he keeps trying to do the right thing and kind of ends up, you yeah. know, a lot of times he spends most of the movie trying to convince other people of what he knows. Yeah, so he's not he's not a bumbling character in the sense. But I think like to me, I don't know if this occurred to you, but I, I found myself thinking like. So why is this not Dick Ferran playing this part? <laughs> because it's obviously yeah, it's a, a Dick Ferran kind of role. And I can only think like it maybe, but just because he was busy making something else. But you can you you'd have to think that he had to been considered, or people would say like, okay, we need we need a Dick Ferran kind of guy here, character <laughs> here, because this is totally who he would be 
playing in this kind of yeah, film. Yeah, it's true. And the thing about the thing about Broderick Crawford is, he, Crawford is that he had such a long career. Oh, yeah. career. Yeah. And you know, some of his best. So let's let's be clear. Mm. A lot of his best work was in his future. At he this was. point, nineteen forty one. Yeah. A lot of his best work is in the future. Yeah. Uh, all uh, all the uh, King's Men mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, Born Yesterday. Yeah. Where he's that you know the blowhard gangster. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Who's, who's not real bright and kind of pissed off that everybody around him knows he's not that bright. Mm-hmm. And he's really, really good at that. And, and yeah, I, he's, you know, he has so many memorable roles across so many years. Mm-hmm. And this, this, in this film, I got to say, I think he's good in this movie. Oh, well, yeah, I did not. Yeah, I think he's fine in the role. Well, well not just that. Mm-hmm. I think that he's the character on screen that. Maybe it's because the character that he's playing is kind of central to trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Yeah. And so he's the one that's that's trying to keep the plot on track. Yeah. But when he's doing that, when he's... Because there are times when I think... is I, I was worried that the character mm-hmm. was actually going to be portrayed as kind of a, a bit of a bumbler. Mm-hmm. But the only quote-unquote bumbling trait the character has is his allergy to cats. And that's mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. The rest of the time, mm-hmm. he is on point mm-hmm. trying to figure out what the hell is going mm-hmm. on. Yeah. And, of course, a good bit of that is because he is attracted to the, the Anne Gwynn character and, therefore, is trying to wrap this thing up and hope that nobody else gets killed because mm-hmm. he's feared that, hey, mm-hmm. if we start off in care, if we start off yeah. in some of these family members, whoever's involved might want to off many more of them and get, you know, get hopefully get more of the uh, inheritance. He is actually my favorite performance mm. in the film mm. because I, I hate to say it, but I think most of the, the female characters are underwritten except for Gail Sondergaard's character. Yeah. Yeah. She's not underwritten. She's written mm. exactly at the level she needs mm-hmm. to be. There's enough mm-hmm. of her, yeah. and she gives it the right spin so mm-hmm. that she's incredibly memorable. But I mm-hmm. have to say, once Henrietta is killed, mm-hmm. Roger Crawford, Crawford's character is the memorable character on screen. Mm-hmm. Basil Rathbone has a few moments because it's Basil Rathbone. Yeah. He's suave. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's very good on the screen. Mm-hmm. He, he, can, yeah. he can make he can walk crap, through, he can yeah. sleepwalk through these roles by this point and still be good. Yeah, exactly. Because, and, yeah. This is, and this is before he you know got really heavily into the groove mm-hmm. of, of doing all of the Universal Sherlock Holmes yeah, right. films that he was about to start doing mm-hmm. and would mm-hmm. be doing for the next several years. Mm-hmm. He'd already played Sherlock Holmes a couple of times on screen, mm-hmm. uh, which is why, of course, we have that one-line joke where yeah. uh, one character says he thinks, oh, he thinks he's an actor, and he says, and somebody else says, yeah, he thinks he's Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, you're it's right. Like, it's, yeah. it's like everybody yeah. in the world at that they're, point, they're especially letting, that yeah. would have been very much in the public's mind. So, exactly, yeah. exactly, because mm-hmm. that you know that's. This is an actor who'd already played Holmes mm-hmm. a couple of times. So, mm-hmm. hey, hey, hey. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. But it's actually a line that I had. I liked it. I liked it. It was a good note. I thought it was. That actually was a pretty good I one. liked it, yeah. But it's, uh, it's a good example of a funny line that I mm. enjoy, but that is the wrong kind of funny line for a film that's trying to actually mm-hmm. in, make me mm-hmm. feel invested in. The mystery, mm-hmm. because what that is is that's a jokey comedy line, mm-hmm. and it's one it's one of the ones that works. Yeah. So yeah. good point. Good. Yeah, that, that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, it makes it a bad thing if you're trying mm-hmm. to actually get me to invest in who is the murderer mm-hmm. or murderers or whatever this thing is going to turn out to be. So it's it's a herky jerky back and forth kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. When, like I say, we have the two elements: the old dark house murder mystery. And then the comedic bits, 
usually for me at least working at cross purposes for each other. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. they're almost at times mm-hmm. negating each other mm-hmm. so that I don't care about the murder yeah. and I'm not laughing. Yeah. So, yeah. point an attempt is made on abigail's life once they're 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 stranded in the house for the night yeah an attempt is made on abigail's life and it's unsuccessful but then just a little bit later her body is found dangling from the end of a rope an apparent suicide Mm -hmm. but uh gill proves that she was murdered and i like the this is a good little murder mystery detail Mm -hmm. about uh the the wood you know the the wood uh splinters in the Mm -hmm. rope and how they're Mm -hmm. in the rope you know, mm-hmm. showing that she definitely was hoisted up by, you know, the rope was mm-hmm. pulled in one direction instead of the other. In other words, if she'd used the rope to hang herself over this mm-hmm. doorway, yeah, yeah. then the, 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 ro- the rope would have burned in this direction, but it, it was obviously pulled in the other direction. So that means she was murdered. I thought that's, hey, that's a, that's a clever little bit from, you know, a good old, a good old murder mystery kind of story. And that's yeah. cool. And I also like a nice little visual reference. They have the first time, the first attempt in her life when they find her in sort of a, a chest that's at the end of the bed in her yeah. bedroom and they open it up and the black cat is in there with her. Yeah. I thought well, that's a cool little reference to Poe's story without being bad. just too overt about it. It's like, okay, somebody online at least had the presence of thought to like, okay, Hey, we're trying to we'll channel Poe. Let's put this in here. And anybody yeah. knows the story. We'll get what we're going, where we're going with it. So, well, whoever the murderer is seems to be lurking around in the shadows and it kind of to be, mm. it, it appears as a cloaked figure occasionally and mm. seen prowling throughout the corridors of the, uh, the old estate. Kind of, uh, and at one point, nonsensically leaving a trail of crematory ashes throughout the place as if this is going to be something that, I can't figure out what the murderer thought they were going to accomplish. The only thing I can figure is they figure like, well, if I leave ashes here, and I guess they were already planning to leave the ashes with Abigail's body, and that was their way that they would make everybody think that Abigail, Abigail had visited had their room the, or something. But Or was the murderer actually and committed suicide out of guilt or something? Uh, maybe, yeah. I guess, yeah, that is a little odd there. Well, Henrietta's daughter Myrna... Uh, played by Gladys Cooper, is nearly hanged in her room, but is rescued by Gill. When she regains consciousness, she accuses the gardener, Eduardo Vitos, who is the character played by Bella Lugosi, who we've managed to not mention up until now. Poor Bella, yeah. <laughs> well, Bella is playing uh, a thank. Well, I would say it's almost a thankless but role. But not totally. Not as much not as totally. I was expecting it yeah. to be. He actually has some, he has some good moments does, in this movie. He does, he does. And I, I like his look. He's that. Yeah. He's kind of a grungy looking, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, slightly unshaven with a weird. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of think I hate to say it, but I with his you know Hungarian yeah. accent yeah. and that I have to say I, that mustache he's sporting mm-hmm. kind of it's I kind of think of that as the a scraggly Hungarian mustache, which yeah. I have absolutely 
no way to back up that description of that mustache. Mm-hmm. That makes mm-hmm. no sense. I've not seen photographs. I've right. read a description that would say, mm-hmm. oh, that's a Hungarian mustache. Mm-hmm. It's just, as soon as I see that, that's what, that's a, that's a, that's a Hungarian mustache. That's what mm-hmm. that is. Yeah. I don't know why. <laughs> but I love his look in this because he looks every bit, you know, the, you know, the, the immigrant gardener mm-hmm. who's kind of beloved of the lady, of the, you know, the, the, the lady of the house, the matriarch, but is really quirky and strange. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it's that quirky and strangeness that makes him the most obvious Mm. red herring, even before uh, Myrna accuses him of having been in the room and tried to kill her. Uh, As the others search the grounds for Eduardo, he enters Myrna's room and insists she accused him unjustly. Myrna pulls a gun and shoots the gardener dead. So exit (laughs) Bella. Yeah. Now... Since that means that uh, this, this is going to make you think that, that Bella's character has less screen time, he actually had several scenes before yeah. he gets off. Yeah. And I think one of the best is a moment where uh, in, in the raging storm, yeah. it's raining outside, mm-hmm. and uh, Broderick's, uh, character, Broderick Crawford's character, Gil, looks out the window and sees Bella with this, this uh, uh, cart, this cart being pulled by a horse, that uh, he looks like he may, he was shoving something into the back end yeah. of it, and and Gil freaks out and yeah. runs out there because he thinks he's like shoving a shoving yeah. a body in uh, there, and it, <clears throat> and he tears the door open on the back of the cart, and Bella's freaking out because what he'd been doing was gathering up all the cats so that he could take them inside <laughs> and get, get them out. out of the damn storm. Uh, and, and now the yeah, cats are everywhere. Yeah, that's that was a great scene. And and as somebody speaking as someone who has often rescued cats from storms, my cats from you know rushed down and got my cats in from. You know, raging monsoons and all that. I, uh, but it's cool because it gives the character suddenly realize that he's 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 actually kind of a soft hearted or got a good good side yeah. to him. You know that he was just trying to rescue the cats. You know, um, so yeah, I, I like that. And and uh, here's my feelings on the Bella in this film and and the, and the characters. When I first saw him, my thought was, oh no, he's just strictly going to be here to just leer into windows and yeah. be you know the obvious heavy who is obviously not the heavy, but just because he's creepy Bella Gosi. So I had that feeling of sympathy for what you said. Thankless is a word. Thanks, me. And um, <clears throat> and I also made me think kind of how uh, how ironic is it Bella always and the, the parallels between Karloff and Lugosi that Bella is essentially playing here sort of what Karloff's role in the old dark in James Wells' old dark house is. You know, yep, this is and true. I really think his role is probably has more to do than Karloff did in that role. Now Karloff had the more yeah. memorable makeup. True. But Karloff as Morgan in the old dark house pretty much just lurches around drunkenly and menaces people throughout the whole movie. Whereas I think Lugosi has a little bit more of a role, a little bit more substantial scenes in this film than Karloff did. I think in that. I, I, I agree with you to a, to a large degree. I think that um, as Karloff's role in the 32 old dark house by James mm-hmm. Whale has it's very imposing. You don't yeah. forget it. Yeah, it's iconic. I mean, yeah. you know what it's from every time you see it. You're like, oh yeah, I remember him from that. Bill. But if you if you compare the uh, quality of screen time, mm-hmm. um, Bella has a good bit more to chew on in mm-hmm. this movie, yeah. and that's really weird to be able to say when I've been taking pot shots at this screenplay the whole time. Mm-hmm. But there are areas where the screenplay works, yeah. and I think yeah. that it that it does mm-hmm. give some good juice to mm-hmm. the main red herring, which is Bella Lugosi's character. Yeah. Yeah. And so, as an actor, mm-hmm. Lugosi reaps the rewards of that attention to detail in the script. Yeah. Which is an attention to detail that the script does not evidence in a lot of other places. Yeah, so yeah, he got yeah. lucky in that respect. Yeah, I think that's as far as we're going to go in detailing sure. uh, the specifics of who the bad guy is. Mm-hmm. Needless to say, in the in the in the final few minutes, we do find out what's going on. It does involve the crematorium. Mm-hmm. Yes, it does. 
And uh, the uh, very interesting ending comes about. And I just wanted to mention one really interesting thing. The, the person who is the bad guy um, has, a, has a, a really nasty ending. Um, this is not something that I expected this movie to do. <laughs> right, I expected right. there to be a, you know, a set of handcuffs and the police showing up out mm-hmm. of the blue to, to cart off the villainous mm-hmm. character. Mm-hmm. What I did not expect was the, uh, the villainous character to be accidentally immolated. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the Especially in a film that death. has been so nonviolent yeah. to this point. But the character gets accidentally lit on fire and runs out into the night mm-hmm. on fire, mm-hmm. which is a really gruesome way to mm-hmm. off the bad guy in a mm-hmm. movie that has fluctuated between mm-hmm. mystery and light comedy yeah. like this movie has. But mm-hmm. there you have it. Yeah. The bad guy meets a seriously awful ending, mm-hmm. and uh, it's kind of a striking, it's a striking moment, and it's one of those moments where you kind of got to wonder... What were they thinking? I mean, were they aware of the tone that the film had struck? <sighs> yeah, I mean, I mean yeah. they had to be. They had to be, right? Yeah. Or was I, I'm sorry, but in the 1940s, was burning to death horribly not considered? <laughs> it a wasn't the Frankenstein monster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like Frankenstein was the only mon- uh, Frankenstein monster was the only thing that was allowed to actually just burn to death on screen. You know, yeah. nobody batted an eye. And maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> I mean, this is you know clearly decades and decades later. But you know, is is it mm-hmm. is there been a sea change in, in the view of how horrible <laughs> it is to burn to death? Yeah, since well, 1941. I mean, well, <laughs> I see what you're saying. I, that the whole final sequence of the film, I think, is maybe the best of the um, film. I mean, to, a lot of it is. I mean, I, I think it it kind of. I think it's a pretty fairly exciting ending to a degree. Yeah. I mean, I, well, I, I agree. there's I some agree. things I think could have been better about it. Again, we have to be careful about what we say here, but I like the way the clue. I like the clue that gives away the murderer. Okay. Yeah. I think that's. I think that's actually a pretty good one. Yeah. Because it involves stuff we've seen through the whole film, you know, as far as weather-wise and all that stuff, you know, how the how it uses that to to reveal who the killer is. I also like the way another thing that that gives the killer away is is similar to the ending of the post stories, Black Cat, you know, true. the element Very that true. you know. Um, although I feel that it, with a little bit of editing, that actually could have been revealed even better in a more effective way. Okay. Um, I mean, it's it's because because the way it's filmed, it's kind of like. I sort of picked up a few minutes before it happened where it was going, like that it was going to go that way, that the cat was going to be the one to, you know, kind of, the, the entombed, of, yeah. or the cat's walled up, you know, and I think it would have been, could have been filmed in a way that maybe held that back a little bit so that you don't necessarily know that he's in there until until the characters do, you know, like, like yeah. you know, I think that could have been a little bit better handled there, just be a little bit more of a surprise. And then with the whole, I was to you, like, like you two, I was jolted by the, the burning of the killer, once I thought that that actually could have been filmed a little better because the last scene you see of that, instead of using a stunt person, they obviously used <clears throat> like a, a figure that's on a, obviously on a rolling platform, you know, that's rolling on fire. Yeah, yeah. You don't only see it for a few frames, but it's it's a little distracting. I think that could have been a little better. So little technical issues like that, I think, could have been better. Overall, though, I thought the 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 finish of the film was was pretty satisfying. I thought the way it all wraps up and you know was. I mean, to be not be a mystery that I was, like you said, doesn't pull you in that much to begin with, at least kind of at the end there, it's got a little bit of juice to it, you know, it's got a little bit of a, of a punch to it, I think, so. I agree, I agree. I think that, um, 
who was it the the, the writer who the writer responsible for the for, for adaptation uh, the, the the film adaptation the Spike Jones film oh um, where he talks about how you know you can you can get away with almost anything as long as you have a really satisfying ending yeah. this movie doesn't have a really satisfying yeah, ending yeah, totally, but. but it does have an, an an ending that is memorable and kind mm. of unexpected mm-hmm. it wraps mm-hmm. the story mm-hmm. up but mm-hmm. in a in a in a strangely yeah. violent yeah. way that you've just not come to expect from the tone of the piece yeah so that's interesting enough yeah. i think it's i think it's fascinating that the leadoff comment from um tom weaver in his book is that the film is mostly notable for squandering a fine cast <laughs> and the considerable skills of a top technical crew on bottom drawer material and i can't yeah. disagree with him yeah. Yeah. i i you know yeah. i see exactly mm-hmm. what he's talking about yeah weaver continues that such a patchwork script ever got it ever made it out of the story department in the first place to become the most polished genre piece Universal produced in 1941, including The Wolfman, is amazing. Despite its impressive cast, the real star is photographer Stanley Cortez, the distinguished technician whose puzzling career included working from the heights of Orson Welles' Magnificent Ambersons in 42 and Charles Lawton's the Night of the Hunter in 55 to the dizzying depths of the Madman of Mandora, Mandoras in 1963 and the Navy versus the Night Monster in 66. He gives this Sal's ear of a movie the look of a silk purse. Universal's familiar mansion sets from the imposing staircase to the cavernous, sumptuous, appointed living room never looked as handsome and the photographer provides some striking images of the cloaked murderer skulking through the dimly lit secret, pa- secret passageways. I got to admit, he's right. It's something that I was just accepting as part and parcel of this kind of story. Mm-hmm. In other words, I just expected this movie to look this good, but he's pointing out it didn't have to look that good. And as a matter of fact, mm-hmm. it looks way better than a lot of other films. And of mm-hmm. course, he makes the controversial statement that he thinks it looks better than The Wolfman, which is mm-hmm. a film that we're still we're, a couple of months right, away from right, as right. far as... Because mm-hmm. this film came out in on mm-hmm. in the, at the 1st of May, May the 2nd of 1941. Mm-hmm. The Wolfman comes out a few months later, and he's saying flat mm-hmm. out that this movie looks better. In this case, I have to say, sorry, Tom, but The Wolfman has more fog. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So I gotta disagree okay. with you on that. Okay, <laughs> now, now you gotta come to Monster Bash because Tom Weaver's always there. Oh yeah, we I need, will. Oh, just, I need yeah. you two to have a discussion of fog. Yeah, well, I'm gonna discuss yeah fog fog factors with uh, yeah which <laughs> films have the best fog factors there with Tom. Explain to him the Gwinometer, the one to ten scale. Oh hell, that's that's gonna be my McFarland book, man. I never thought about that. The fog factor, an exhaustive, <laughs> an exhaustive fog examination fog of filmography. fog Yeah, fog. Fog filmography. Fascinating. Oh I can't even, can't even do the alliteration. It's too much. To, that, that, it's too, too much to get you. You trip, you trip over it just trying to think about it sometimes. Just, an exhaustive film filmography. Film. Filmography. <laughs> oh my God. Fog Factor Film Filmography. Fog Factor 5. <laughs> yeah, that's good. 
have a one to ten scale. <laughs> it's a five scale, so Fog Factor, Factor five, five is the ultimate, of course. Oh my god. Oh, yeah. oh god, how do we get lost in this? I don't know. Because it's fog. In the fog, we lost in the fog. We get lost in the fog. <laughs> Nevertheless. Yes. Oh uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I, I will agree with him that the I do think the best thing about the film. I think the cast is great. I think that the is one of the strong strengths of the film. And I, and I do cast, feel yeah. I do feel that a lot of the cast does get wasted because yeah, the, I mean, the material is really not up to a lot of uh, yeah. a lot of the stuff that uh, let's mm-hmm. let's put it clearly. Basil mm-hmm. Rathbone's wasted in this damn movie. Yeah, he yeah. really is. Basil mm-hmm. Rathbone is a character actor at this point. Mm-hmm. He is a leading man. Mm-hmm. Who can handle character pieces yeah. brilliantly? He's extraordinarily good. No matter what you put him in, he's gonna bring home the bacon, baby. And he's probably just and looked at the script. He's like, "Oh, great! I'm playing a cold prig. You know, that's just yeah. what I, you know. Okay, that's I think I, I can do. think I can do this. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, the thing is, let's let's give the give the devil his due because he mm-hmm. certainly does invest mm-hmm. this role yeah. with yeah. as much gravitas as he's mm-hmm. capable of. Mm-hmm. It's just that you know, there's not a lot of meat on the bone for no. him to, 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 to chew on. So yeah. it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I will give the film credit for using the word, uh, one of my favorite words that needs to come back into, into uh, modern use is overwrought. Overwrought. When his, <laughs> yes. uh, when yes. his wife tells him, she says, when she's begging with Basil Rathbone to stay with her after she's just gunned down Eduardo and she's, you know, been, been giving him a hard <laughs> yeah. time. Because she knows he's having an affair with, you know, with, with, a, young, with, the, with, yeah. a, with a younger but other family member. But she's begging him to stay with him. She says, I've, I've just been overwrought. And I thought, I love it when they say that. It's just, you know, I, that needs... I've just been overwrought. In other words, I'm not going to say I know you're a cheating yeah. bastard. <laughs> but because of this knowledge, mm-hmm. I am overwrought. That's just the word I want to use whenever you become... Uh, become irritated over my not liking mummy movies as you become overwrought overwrought when discussing. yes I do become overwrought and, and, quite, and quite murderous yes <laughs> apoplectic is another one you become apoplectic. overwrought you become overwrought and apoplectic there are a lot of words there we need to bring great, back do. into the vernacular we, we need to actually actually yes. bring back to mm-hmm. common usage mm-hmm. because they're effective mm-hmm. they give certain shade to, to rather violent mm-hmm. and, and, and sometimes completely ridiculous emotions <laughs> And so it's good to have those words around to pull out. Yeah. <laughs> to throw around with, with, with great joy. But um, let's, uh, before we, before we, uh, well, I, all I tell you, well, let's go ahead and say, mm-hmm. well, we'll, okay, we'll, we'll I'll, I'll, yeah, let's, let's, uh, let's sum up a little bit here because I, I want to mm-hmm. say, before I read uh, some of the uh, the reviews from the, uh, the year the film came out, I'd like mm-hmm. to say, well, you know, we've talked a good bit about this and I think both of us feel this movie is a bit of a mixed bag. So, yeah. What is your final kind of uh, appraisal of the yeah. film as a whole? Um, uh, you know, it's I, I always feel like I give every one of these films of this type of six. It seems like what I always give, you know. I no, but I, I was wavering almost between a five, you know, yeah. and a six, except that I do, I mean, I, I, it wasn't a torture to set through both times. I mean, oh, you no. know, because it moves, like I said, pacing-wise, it still moves along pretty well. And a lot of the performances are enjoyable. And uh, so, you know, I do feel like, it, I, I think I enjoyed, I still enjoyed the film. You know, I think I would say that I, you know, I, I, I did. And so I, I think I'd have to give it at least a six on that on that respect. And it is technically very well made. He's right about the photography and all that. that it's, they, be- this it's, setting, a be- it's a beautiful, beautiful setting and all that. Now. And and I can, you know, and I think you and I both, we always enjoy any kind of old dark house setting and that sort of thing. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I'm pretty comfortable with giving it a, I feel like I would give it a five. That's maybe, uh, I think, I think it's better than, I think it's a little better, slightly better than that in just the sense that I could watch okay. it again at some point and you know if this situation arose or I, you know I, I could because one thing I'm thinking of and you may have thought of this too but I can almost guarantee you that you know we're going to get from Scream Factory before long probably a Blu-ray another Universal collection that's going to be this film these yeah. films because we've already had one collection that had that's got both 
um, Horror Island and this on it and a couple other films, you know, that's already come out once. And I'm guessing that probably Screen Factory got those properties, too. These are probably going to come out on Blu-ray at some point, you know, and uh, and so that may be an excuse well, just to nice, see it yeah. again and, and see, you know, and uh, and I think I and I I don't dread that prospect. I mean, I would enjoy watching it again. I think. So. Well, I mean, we well, we already know what the four films the the the, the set of uh, Universal Horror classics that um, has already come mm-hmm. out, the set of four mm-hmm. that has already come out mm-hmm. includes the Black Cat, the Raven, uh, Murders in the Room Org, mm-hmm. and um, Black Friday. Is it Black Friday that's in that set? I thought it was because it's all Lugosi. It's all Lugosi Karloff stuff, right? Oh, that's right. Okay, so uh, but the the second volume of that set, the four movies in that are much more rare films, and I'm just <laughs> thrilled that those are getting the kind, mm-hmm. that kind yeah. of release. the the second The second volume has uh, Murders Murders in the Zoo, which was actually a Paramount production, if memory serves. Mm-hmm. But Universal, I think Universal got their hands on it. Somehow. Yeah, I think the they same, did. The same way they got like Island of Lost Souls, right? Uh, the Mad Ghoul, mm-hmm. which is one of my favorites from the 40s. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Mad Doctor of Market Street. And as I mentioned before, yeah. The Strange Case of Dr. RX. Yeah. So getting a chance to look at these movies in, in oh, high definition yeah. Yeah. is very, very exciting. Especially something like uh, The Mad Ghoul, which which has had a pretty good release uh, on mm-hmm. video before. But plus, I can't wait till a whole new audience of people... It has their eyeballs peeled back by the opening sequence in Murders in the Zoo. Yeah. But that's beside the point. Uh, rarely was Lionel Atwill nastier on the screen than, <laughs> yeah. in, than in Murders in the Zoo. Right. But we're in a, a period of time where we can actually hope mm-hmm. that some of these rarer universal horror films from the 30s and 40s get a, a really loving blu-ray release yeah. because yeah. lord god look at I mean, that like, I mean, that's, mad that's, ghoul, man that's great we're yeah. getting an hd mm-hmm. copy of the mad ghoul mm-hmm. holy crap i would mm-hmm. i would i would have actually bet money against that possibility in my lifetime I because i just I, I, but the way they're doing it is of course they're packaging four mm-hmm. of these movies mm-hmm. together and yeah. they're thinking that that's going to be the better way to do it well that's great so yes you're right if they were to take this this set with Har island and mm-hmm. uh what the night you know night key mm-hmm. and um was it was it Man-Made Monster on that set, or was Man-Made it a different Monster. set? Yeah. If they were to do a set of four, any yeah. random four of them, yeah. I don't care what they are. Yeah. Shit, yeah. they'd get my money. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking. I, you know, I would, uh, yeah, I'd be look forward to seeing these films and that. That's one. One more question I want to ask you. Well, what was your rating that you gave? Did you? Uh, my rating was my. I, I finally fell on a six. Yeah. Uh, okay. it's, it's the feeling I've always had with this film mm-hmm. because I've I've watched this uh, with this movie over the years probably three mm-hmm. or, three or four mm-hmm. times because it's a quickie. Mm-hmm. It's got enough juice in it. it it's one of those movies that. Once I watch it, I get I get that same feeling, which is I hover between a five and a six, and end up giving it a six because mm-hmm. it's got just enough juice for me to enjoy yeah. what's there, mm-hmm. and I can you know kind of mentally skip over the bits where I'm like, yeah. oh, this is really needs to speed along. This needs mm-hmm. there needs to be less bad comedy, but it's you know enough enough time will pass by and I'll go, oh, you know I wouldn't mind watching that again. So here's the question I was going to ask you: Which would you could you pick a favorite between this? And Horror Island, if you had to choose between the two, yes, which oh, you easily. think you, you yeah, which you think you enjoyed the most, I enjoy Horror Island, more. Horror Island more, uh, yeah. and, and and part of that is, uh, I I like I like Dick Ferrand. Oh, me too. I like Dick Ferrand and Peggy I, Moran. And Peggy Moran, and I like I like their the their 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 combo on screen is is 
very charismatic. I like watching them. I don't think Fuzzy Knight was as no, overdone Ni- as, right. as, as, as the comic relay as Mr. That's, you're, that's he, exactly he, where Herbert, I was going. Herbert, I'm sorry, in this film. Yeah. That's exactly where I was going yeah, because yeah. we still have the, you know, the isolated, you know, old mm. dark house, mm-hmm. which is where the, the majority of both of these stories take place. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the light comedy in Horror Island doesn't grate on my nerves. Yes. Yeah, uh, it's, and sometimes it's actually funny. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there is an actual mystery involved. Mm-hmm. A, a kind of silly mystery, but mm-hmm. it pays off at the end. Mm-hmm. So I like yeah. Horror Island more easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think but I do too. Although, yeah. I, I, although I, I end up giving both movies probably kind of the a same, six. about the same rating, but still. But they, yeah, get, they get to that six in different ways. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Yeah. I think with Horror Island, it was more just elements of the plot. Just, I think we felt like maybe just didn't, weren't as yeah. tight as they could be, didn't hold together quite as well. This is true. It, so. This is true. And, they, and mm-hmm. it, the Horror Island throws enough bizarre elements at the screen. Yeah. You know, it's like you know, we yeah. have the gangsters getting away and you know mm. yeah. it's like, <laughs> yeah. it's like you don't need that in there. But yeah. it's like, all right, what the hell? You dispense with it well enough, it's fine. Yeah. So um this is you know this the nineteen forty one Black Cat is uh it's certainly not a great film. It's not a classic, yeah. Yeah. but it is uh a fun enough little mm-hmm. variation on the old dark house stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh and uh, it, it is kind of weird to see such a young Alan Ladd no, I know. Yeah, in, in this role, dude was short, wasn't he? He was actually. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've, that's always been the joke about uh-huh. him. Yeah, is that by the time he became, you know, a screen uh, a screen tough guy, the joke was always, yeah, but he's like four feet tall. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, one of my favorite things about the um, Universal Horrors book from Tom Weaver is that he has all these little clips uh, of quotes from uh, critics at the time when the film came out. Some of the, it's really interesting to kind of get a broad cross section of how this film was thought of by critics at the time, yeah, just as, yeah. as, a, as a sense of you know, okay, mm-hmm. forty one, what was going on? Mm-hmm. So we have the Hollywood Reporter uh, saying um, Al Rogel directed with a keen eye toward giving the play all possible comedy in the piece, and he misses no trick in underscoring the laughs. The writers purposefully confuse the audience, but manage in its finale to explain most of their dodges. So doesn't really say much mm-hmm. about what he mm-hmm. thinks of it, other than. A keen eye toward giving the, you know, so for uh, the film Daily was quick and the, the cast is fine. The heart element in the story is sufficient. Direction and screenplay both good. Got to disagree there, but okay. <laughs> uh, the New York Daily News, two and a half stars. A synthetic chiller, reasonable satis- reasonably satisfactory climax, enlivened by occasional comedy. So two and a half stars. That's mm-hmm. kind of what I rated. Yeah, about yeah, that's bad. That's you know. yeah, yeah. Harrison's reports. I have no idea what that is. <laughs> it is somewhat. It is somewhat slow in getting started. As a matter of fact, it is not until the closing scenes, when the murderer's identity becomes known and the heroine's life is endangered, that the action is really exciting. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I, agree I agree with that. I think that that's now. yeah, yeah. And variety. The proper eerie touch is given to the character portrayed by Rathbone, a sinister relative. And that's that's all he. That's all he clips <laughs> from that. I'm like, okay. Well. Okay. And one last thing from the film Daily. All the best mystery props known to the film business have been whipped out for this story. And in addition, a nice flavoring of farce is worked in for good measure. The cast is fine. The horror element in the story is sufficient. With a full complement of secret passages, yowling cats, and sinister characters. And the direction is able. So, like, so fairly positive. Yeah, yeah, overall, yeah. very fairly yeah, well, positive. Actually, it does, yeah. And I think that, you know... Maybe this is a film that played better at the time. I mean, mm-hmm. this seems mm-hmm. to have been a movie that was geared accurately for mm-hmm. a 1941 audience. Yeah, yeah, so. I think so. So, in wrapping up, I guess we'll say the the journey continues. We're yep. moving our yep. way through the 1940s in this mm-hmm. series. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, up next, uh, we delve straight into comedy. Mm-hmm. But hold on, we'll take a quick break, and then Troy and I'll mm-hmm. come back and yeah. let you know what our next Universal Horrors, and I'm going to put horrors in quotes, quotes yeah. for mm-hmm. this next film, will be. So be right back. I'm Jeff Sandwich. You might not know me, barely anyone does, except my mother and her cocker spaniel, Alan. But I have listened to every single movie podcast that has ever been made. I don't get out much, and sometimes I have to make toilet in a bottle. What did he just say, Marjorie? However, having completed this exhaustive research, it is my assertion that the After Movie Diner podcast, with its heady mix of comedy, movie banter, fandom, passion, beards, music, and voluminous thighs, is in fact the greatest movie podcast available anywhere, even Holland. Find the After Movie Diner podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and AfterMovieDiner.com. Now, where's that bottle? Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic, and sometimes not-so-classic, Monster Movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the Head of Rondo Hatton. Only on... Monster Kid Radio! Well, folks, once again, we'd like to thank you for tuning in and listening to mm. Troy and I as we take this trek through the 1940s Universal Horror Films. Next up in this series of podcasts, uh, uh, if you thought that there was a little too much comedy in huh. this film this mm. month, let me tell you right now, mm. next month, we're once again trying to stick to the Universal Horrors book. And that's going to become weirder and weirder as we move through the 40s. Yes, it is. And this is our first really weird step. I'm going to have to admit it. This Mm. is our first really weird step. Our next movie is the Abbott and Costello film, Mm. Hold That Ghost. Mm -hmm. Because I think everybody knew that if we kept on with this series, expecting us to do Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein, I think a lot of people probably just forgot about this one that's going to come up even, even sooner. Well, Lord knows I forgot about it because yeah, I still you've never seen it. it. Yeah, yeah, but you have. You've I have years it. and years ago. I remember it is my memories of it was that I really enjoyed it. Although I was very very young, and I probably enjoyed every Abbott and Costello movie. So I don't. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, it's it's probably been yeah again since I was really young since I saw it. But I I did I know I liked it. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the co-stars are exciting. Oh, like yeah. Richard Carlson and yeah. Shemp Howard apparently has a yeah. small role. And uh, Evelyn Ankers. Oh, yeah. Or is, is it Evelyn or Evelyn Ankers? That's a good question. I always said Evelyn, but I, I could Evelyn be wrong. Too. It could be Evelyn. But, it could uh, be Evelyn. Anyway, she's... Andrew's sisters. Yeah, that was oh, no, the Andrew's Andrew sisters. Which means we're going to get at least one you cool get, song. Get some songs, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, very cool. But that's what uh, we'll be covering next time mm. in the Universal mm. Horrors 
Yeah. It, like I say, horrors in quotes yeah. for this one because it's you know it's an Abbott Costello film. Hold yeah. that ghost yeah. from nineteen forty one. But at least we 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 can we have a good we can be optimistic that the comedy will go over better than than, oh, than what yes. we've seen in the last yes last couple of films. So let's just say that w- with me, the Abbott and Costello hit to miss ratio is way higher. Oh yeah. Than yeah. a lot of other films of this mm. period because mm. uh, they knew funny. Yeah, they do. I mean, it's it's like. It's like telling me I'm going to have to watch a Marx Brothers film. Well, I know I'm going to laugh. There's <laughs> yes, going to be some that's right. There is going to be. Yeah. Not going to bother me yeah. at all. So, uh, strangely enough, next time out, mm. hold that ghost. Right. And, oh, I'm sorry. Ahead. No, you're going to. I was just going to. I was going to. By the way, if you want to reach the the, the podcast, uh, our email address is thebloodypit at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. You can write us there or drop us a, 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 an MP3 if you want to record what you've got to say and send that to us. We'll include it as part of the show. Also, you can uh, talk to us and reach us over on the Bloody Pit Facebook page as well. Always answering questions and uh, queries over there. Matter of fact, I just had to uh, deal with one just today where someone was pointing out that uh, a particular link for one of our older shows was working. I got home today and fixed that. Yeah, so please let us know that. Yes, yeah, if you ever discover that, awesome. don't hesitate to tell us that, hey, this this link isn't playing anymore because we definitely won't fix that. Yeah, yeah, and and there are, there are dead links out there because I just, I mean, let's be honest, we've done... Uh, more than 150 episodes yeah. of different podcasts between you know just the two of us. Yeah, right. And so what you end up with is uh, some stuff, some some older legacy stuff, and it's just like you have to just refresh those things every mm-hmm. now and then just to make sure that everybody who yep. wants to, who's who's discovering the show now, can actually listen to what they want to listen to. Yes, and I'm just gonna say I want to leave everybody with this that I've got the final title for my book, The Fog Factor: A Mystifying Filmography. <laughs> Sorry, sorry. You can edit that uh, out if you want to. Oh, I'm not editing that out. You're gonna have to live with that the rest of your natural fucking life. I know it's bad. That's it's bad. Uh, that's. I don't. Hey, I don't pun a lot, and I know you hate puns, which is why I just like to throw an out now and then just to watch you squirm. I gotta admit, as I get older, I'm softening toward puns. Uh-huh. In other words, I no longer want to murder punsters. <laughs> okay. I mean, light torture. Yeah, sure, light torture's yeah. good. Yeah. I no yeah, longer like want to, yeah. you know, like the fingernails pulled out and yeah. slow death just over a time. Bamboo shoot under the nails. Yeah, yeah. Days, I'm, I'm, I'm softening. I yeah. don't. Want mm. punsters dead. I'm, okay. I'm gonna be happy with them slowly melting mm. in a horrible, <laughs> horrible furnace. Okay, but uh, you know, not in a, you in not a you. crematorium. You're you're yeah, you're, yeah. you're, a, you're a friend. Oh uh, yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I, your ashes would be put in a sweet urn <laughs> near a statue of Bast <laughs> yeah, that we statue would not bast. call Bast. <laughs> that we would not call Bast. The Bast is not Bast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh God. That, imagine that as a past. The Bast, the bast who is, is not, not Bast. bast. <laughs> And enter here. (laughs) Leave thy underwear at the door. (laughs) Okay, so people, thank you once again for listening to us babble incessantly about things that we should probably not be talking about in public. If you you haven't checked out already. Yeah, yeah, really. (laughs) Yes, if you haven't left this this shit show already. If you're still with us, he is... Rod Barnett. And I'm Troy Gwynn. And we'll see you next time.
What is it you want from me? You won't shock me easily. 